0: you yeah.
1: listening to Sound Opinions, and this week we're talking with independent artist Dawn Richard, whose 2021 album Second Line is one of our favorites of the year. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. But first, we've
2: got some new music.
0: streets, street, street. these roads ain't for the weak. Bitter streets, don't fall asleep.
1: That is a little bit of a track called Bitter Streets from the new album by Salt, S-A-U-L-T, the fifth of its career. Uh, Greg, you had the two releases from last year. Uh, kind of They came as a pair. Untitled Black Is, Untitled Rise as your number one album of the year. They were on my top ten as well. Who is Salt? I wish I could tell you. Uh, we don't know. They have been uh, against uh, saying who the group is, who the driving forces are. We know a couple of names that have been associated: the producer Inflow, uh, Dean Josiah, uh, Chicago rapper Kid Sister, and a great uh, R&B singer named Cleo Sol. There's a rapper named Little Sims, Michael Kiwanuka, fantastic R&B artist we've talked about several times on the show, but. Is Salt all of them? Is Salt some of them? Are there other players to be named? Who knows? They dropped this album on June 25th. It is called Nine. They have said on their website, you've got 99 days from June 25th to enjoy this album. (laughs) Uh, That gives us till October 2nd. Now it's available for sale as a download. It's available for sale on vinyl, and it's streaming everywhere. I think the vinyl... Presumably, and your download will not self destruct, but, uh, uh, you know, maybe they're going to pull it off streaming services in 99 days. Uh, let, let's play a song from this album and then talk about the music because that's what is important. London Gangs from Salt. The album is called Nine. London Gangs, when your soul is
0: tight, it's all lies. Now you're here for life.
2: That is London Gangs from the new Salt album. Nine uh, incredibly prolific group. Uh, Jim, as you mentioned, I, I loved the uh, the twofer because they really talk about it as the same uh, as one and the same in terms of presentation. Untitled Black is and Untitled Rise from last year, and those two records I think spoke to the year that we just went through and the period era we're living in. In one of the one of the most uh, moving. And powerful fashions of any music released in the last few years. This was a broad look at the Black Lives Matter uh, experience, what it means to be a person of color in a world where you're not always very rarely welcome. Yeah. And at the same time they're talking about it in terms of resilience. In other words, hearkening back to uh, a lot of the messages we heard during the civil rights movement in the 60s where we're going to get through this. It's mm-hmm. really a struggle but we're going to find a way through. On 9, they're being more specific. They're drilling down into their experience in, in, in Britain, growing up as a a person of color in England. And that specific experience, they're talking about what it means to grow up on those streets in particular. London gangs, trap life, fear, you know, you from London. You know, they talk about <laughs> these kind of ideas of, you yeah. know, hey, here you are, uh, a person of color in England. What's that like? Um, again, the, the music um, is incredibly... Uh, diverse. Inflow is a brilliant producer in the way he's bringing in the black music experience and in, in, in tying it together with black music, which is basically the foundation of basically every important musical form of the last uh, of the last century.
1: I, I think uh, we need to delineate that Greg. What are we talking about? Talking about R&B, we're talking about soul, we're talking about hip gospel. hop, we're talking about gospel, we're talking about trap music, we're talking about psychedelic funk in the great maggot brain parliament yeah. folkadelic tradition. Essentially the entire spectrum of the last half century plus. It's it's all there. And and they talk about gang life and you know the 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 perspective
2: from the outside about gang life is this is evil, these people are criminals or thugs. And they're saying, well, there's a reason these gangs exist, yeah. is because people of color feel they got to gather together in some kind of organization, some kind of community to protect themselves and because death gangs. is around the corner. You, you know,
1: straightforward uh, paths to business success are not always open to them.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: And, and I think this, this record uh,
2: addresses that very directly. Uh, you mentioned Lil Sims. Uh, sh- she talks about, I know killers in the street. But I ain't really involved. We don't want to cause any grief, but we get triggered when hearing the sound of
0: of police.
2: If you are a person of color, even if you're not involved in a gang or in crime, you are somehow touched by it because somebody you know is, somebody you know has been harassed or worse. By by police, you know it's that experience. You know when they talk about bitter streets, they're trapped. You yeah. know, and it's interesting how they use the word trap life. That that is ghetto music in America, right? In here, it's trap music, but it's also you are trapped in this life. How do you get out? And yeah. at the end of the album, they talk about a pathway out. But it's it's a moving experience. This group is incredible. They're making just incredible music year by year. Uh, and when we look back on on this particular point in the twenty first century we'll be
1: referencing Salt's music uh, yeah.
2: to, to explain what was going on.
1: Well and we'll be doing it without any hype whatsoever. I mean the fact that in this age of, of social media oversharing that we're not even certain beyond those names I've thrown out. I mean maybe it is uh, Inflow's entire uh, project And maybe it isn't Maybe there are names That we don't even know Right yeah. and, and and they don't care What, what they want to keep The focus on Is the music mm-hmm. You know It's going to be out there For 99 days yeah. Hop on it now you know nine is an important figure nine is a gun right a nine millimeter and there is a lot of talk about guns uh people may wonder given how heavy you describe this album as being why i chuckled when you said you from london that song uh it's really funny yeah
3: uh, you're from london I'm, I'm gonna be real with you i had no idea but you know what i love europe
1: Despite it being about London gangs, about the streets of England's uh, toughest areas, uh, I think there's a universality in this, Greg. You know, Mike's story, I will say once again, it is a less than one minute, 57 second uh, spoken word piece featuring somebody named Michael Ofo talking about how he learned of his father's death Mm -hmm. in violence on the streets. I remember I started crying because my mum was crying because I could feel her pain I didn't know what was going on but I could feel her pain I am not a big fan, as you know, of the skits that, that that sometimes are dropped into R&B and hip-hop albums. But that really is contextual, because this is an album, I think, about mourning. About mourning the lack of opportunities, about mourning violence, about mourning, uh, you know, why some people turn to drugs and alcohol. Yeah. That, that track, Alcohol, is just fantastic. It's just a really powerful human album. I don't know, can we call it the album of the year in when, when <laughs> it comes to December, <laughs> Because if it, it was be <laughs> only here. Was it here for a whole year? I don't know. Anyway, October 2nd. Move on it before then.
0: In the summer I was sure I'd go to heaven, but I was my bets
2: That is a track called VBS from the new Lucy Dacus record home video, her third studio album, Lucy Dacus a child of Richmond, Virginia, and uh, she sort of fell backwards into her recording career, wasn't really thinking about becoming a recording artist, was sort of writing songs for fun, helped out a friend with a school project, Uh, ended up putting out a record as a result of that called No Burden, that uh, filtered out into the internet and became a sensation. <laughs> like 20 labels were interested in signing these artists based on yeah. a couple of songs she was on the gonna, internet. She was
1: going to go to school and make movies. Yes. And this music thing was just on the side. Exactly. And then uh, that turned into something
2: because Matador signed her and then put out the second record in uh, 2018 called Historian, which sort of upped the production values and. Uh, was widely praised as one of the best albums of that particular year. As if that wasn't a good enough year for <laughs> Lucy Dacus, she got together with a couple of pals who happened to be named Julian Baker and Phoebe Bridgers, only the three of the best songwriters of the last decade, uh, teaming up for a little side project they called Boy Genius. They released an EP in 2018 that was so good, it made my top 10 that year. Home Video, this was a record that was in the works. Apparently, she was ready to release it last year. But COVID put that all on hold. She made the record basically with her band. Her previous record was produced by John Congleton. This was sort of an interior project with she and her band working in isolation creating this record. And uh, now it's finally here. Here's a track from it called First Time from Lucy Dacus' home video on Sound Opinion.
1: That is first time from home video by Lucy Dacus, an extraordinary album, Greg. Uh, It's a concept record. This is a Bildungsroman. Think of it (laughs) as a young woman growing up uh, as a teenager in conservative Richmond. She is from a conservative Christian family. VBS, which we bumped in with, is for Vacation Bible School. And she is questioning uh, the narrow-mindedness of many of the people around her. She is questioning her sexuality. Many of the songs are set in her high school years. She's coming of age. She's wondering where she fits in the world, as as many people do in high school. She has uh, friends who are treated wrong by boyfriends and/or fathers. Uh, the song "Thumbs" mm. is is atypical musically in that it's such a hushed song but uh, everyone is talking about that tune she is accompanying a friend who is going to meet the father she hasn't seen since she was 5 years old now high school age and uh, and you know lucy is telling her you know i would kill him for you i would i would kill him right and then all she imagines the how she would do it she would do it quick and easy but she would do it
0: i would kill him quick and easy Nails are digging into my knee. I don't know how you keep smiling.
1: You know there are those kind of uh, really poignant, uh, novelistic eye for detail and storytelling, and uh, just just fascinating. But 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 I don't want to short the music. She does not have a fantastic voice, but she has a sense for dynamics that I think I haven't heard anybody use dynamics so well since, like, the early days of Galaxy 500. You know, lyrically, musically, it's just a fantastic album that I can't stop listening to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's uh, she's brilliant. She's uh, one of the best songwriters we
2: have. I remember seeing her uh, soon after the first record came out at South by Southwest in Austin, Texas, the Music Conference. I was struck not only by the level of songwriting, because I knew she was a serious songwriter, but just how relatable she was on stage, just such a a warm, down-to-earth, funny personality. People don't realize how funny she is, the sense of humor that sort of bubbles beneath the surface of a lot of these songs. Uh, You know, I'm thinking of a song like Brando, which I think is absolutely brilliant. (laughs) A pop song. I mean, Taylor Swift would love that song. Right. Well, Uh, she's putting
1: down a boy who thinks he's Brando. Yeah,
2: exactly. So she's kind of had this boyfriend who's trying to seduce her and court her. And she says, you called me cerebral. Would it kill you to call me pretty instead?
0: I'm in a second store.
1: You know, and it's yeah. kind of like, okay. Meanwhile, she's you know, not even sure she likes boys. No, no, she.
2: You know, it, that's part of this album too. Her, you know, admission that you know she is living a life that's considered a lie. Uh, you know, in her in her church, you know, it's like you can't do that. You know, it's not yeah. allowed. Yeah. And you know, being bisexual is a ba- is a sin. And and she's going, well, wait a minute. This is the way I feel.
1: Yeah.
2: Uh, so she's wrestling with all these all these notions. There's a quote that she gave uh, that I really like. I wanted to visualize the moment when you first reflect on your childhood, which I think can also be the moment the childhood is over. Mm. So she came back to Richmond for her first tour and realized everything's changed. Everybody yeah. looks at me differently now. Now I'm, and, and Richmond has changed for me, too. I re, kind of realize these things that I've been carrying around for my childhood. So, you know, this is a very nuanced record in the, in the way she's looking at it. It's not self-pitying. Her voice is, is pretty deadpan. She's not histrionic at all. But these songs have a way of devastating you. Like she yeah. jumps from kind of like everyday details and then she'll kill you with a line. They go, whoa, where did that come from? Like, right. in, like in that song Thumbs, which is, it just sends a chill up my spine every time I hear it. It's so good about accompanying this friend to meet, yeah. as you said, her, her you know, deadbeat dad and, and uh, you know, her feelings about that subject. So a brilliant songwriter who just keeps getting better with each record. What do you think of the latest from Salt and Lucy Day? Because we're both pretty enthused, but we want to know what your opinions are. Tell them to us on our Facebook group or in our Patreon community. Or you can leave us a voice message on our website, soundopinions.org. Coming up, our conversation with artist Don Richard on Sound Opinions.
0: We still got a lot. To... So much a drip like me?
1: And we're back. That's a little bit of music from our guest this week, singer and songwriter Dawn Richard. Earlier this year, Dawn released her latest solo album, Second Line, a record both Greg and I loved, and we gave it glowing reviews, Mr. Cotton. That's right, Jim. And as a solo artist, uh, Dawn's been
2: innovatively blending genres like pop, electronic music, and R&B. And she does that more than ever on Second Line. In many ways, it's a kind of a futuristic album. You know, Sun Ra would appreciate this record, yeah. Janelle Monet. But it's also a love letter to her home, New Orleans, and to her mother.
1: We caught up with Dawn and had a wonderful time talking with her, discussing uh, her unusual musical career trajectory, which began, believe it or not, as a member of the Diddy Constructed girl group, Dadity Kane, made for television like the monkeys, Greg, (laughs) and has led to where she is now, an independent artist making music on her terms alone. Don, I got to ask you, because your parents have been such a big
2: part of your life, obviously, and these last two records have focused on them. I love hearing your mother's voice on Second Life. Thank you. Thank you. dad was a big part of the previous one, right? I mean, what they represented in your life, that's quite a tribute. So what is it about your parents?
3: You know what it's crazy? It's not just that they were influential for me, but New Orleans is a small city. They were influential to the city. Both of my parents are educators, so they literally have taught about sixty percent of New Orleans just <laughs> off of <Yeah. laughs> education yeah. alone. like they're both an the elementary teacher My dad taught music to all the elementary school education children, and my mom's like taught all the public school students in the, in, in middle school to kindergarten and middle school. So a lot of that relationship, was there and then my father and my mom also my mom on the dance school and my dad is still in the band Chocolate Milk so till this day on the radio station they still play Groove City which is like a anthem in New Orleans that they play literally, they still play jazz fest
0: Blue City. Blue City.
3: So the, the actual Richard name has just been so you know crucial to new orleans even when we lost it and we were homeless to come back the name is still so like present in the city so it made so much sense for them to be a part of my you know my creative process especially with these last two albums because we moved back to new orleans mm-hmm. and on the 10th uh, 10 year anniversary of katrina my both my parents decided look we've been without friends without food without culture long enough, let's go back home. And that entire introduction back home, me meeting the Mardi Gras Indians again, you know, with New Breed and introducing Chief David Montana, the Washita Nation on that album, using my dad's band as a lot of the samples for the album. And then having my mom speak about her side of the family, the New Iberia Cajun country, part of her side. It really just shows you guys that it's not just about the city, but me as a survivor, I think my survival in the music industry is hugely a part of the fact that I'm bred from two survivors that come from a city that's known to have to be a survival city. Hmm. So it just makes sense that my entire story would bleed together with my parents.
2: Yeah, that does make sense. I I was reading an interview with you where you were talking about the fact that your parents, you had no illusions about what you were getting into when you got into the music business because of a lot of times, because of what your parents were were already telling you.
3: Yeah, my dad painted a beautiful, ugly picture. (laughs) He did. Uh, He was not shy about telling me he was signed to RCA, he was with Alan Toussaint, like my dad had a struggle and he was in a band. And so there were a lot of opinions, you know, and a lot of times everyone who can experience a band knows that and a lot of times they they don't stay together and whatever reasons, percentages and publishing and all those things, the nasty things that you don't think most people go through when they think about being an artist. Uh, they were very real for my father. He was. My mom was like, "You're not gonna sing anymore because you're making ten dollars on a song, and that's just not gonna cut it." My dad was, you know, not really feeling the way the band was treated. How they were like being told they had to conform to the sounds of what the '70s was at the time. So I knew all of this coming coming into it. Nobody was like, "Yay, music!" When hmm. I decided to make this journey. If anything, my mom was like, "God, oh my goodness,
1: not you too." <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
3: like not your, not you too. Exactly. That's exactly what she was like. And my dad was just kind of like upfront, you know, and, and he knew it was going to be a struggle. So even when I started my career, I not it, it wasn't like I wasn't, I knew it was going to be rough, you know? And even with that idea, it's still, nobody could prepare me for the trajectory that I've had as an artist. It's just severely unconventional my entire journey.
2: It truly is. It's almost like you did it in reverse. You know, you, <laughs> you start with like one of the biggest names in the whole industry at the time with Puff Daddy being involved in your career early on. And then you went independent like 10 years later, you know, it's kind of like a really kind of weird, unconventional trajectory. Like after having that experience and things don't exactly work out 100 percent, a lot of people would just kind of, you know, give up at that point. Like, okay, I'm going to go try, you know, accounting or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) But you kept going. But what is it that kept you going? What you said, Okay, I'm going to get cut off from all those budgets and all the you know, nice clothes that I could wear and, you know, all the mentorship that I get from a guy who's really connected uh, to doing it on your own. That's a tough, that's a tough transition, right? And and yet you went for it.
3: Yeah, it was, it was rough, you know, uh, budgets that were I would, when, when you think about the definition of a manufactured artist, especially in that time, 2005, uh, where pop, you know, the pop aesthetic was severely manufactured from the major labels to the budget. They gave you the blueprint to a reality TV show. There was just no other, like I was groomed into something that was as manufactured and as machine as you could possibly be.
1: Good morning, MTV. It's your boy, Diddy. And we are back
3: have to finish when we started we're gonna make an album we gonna sell millions of records shoot hot videos and you're gonna love them if it was only that easy uh so i was thrusted into to the budgets and then my went from that to being in a group with my boss so it went from 60 to a billion percent because you know yeah. like the levels of that right it went from you know, to have an Atlantic and bad boy to interscope Jimmy Iovine and Puff. So two mega superstars coming together and then to have none of it.
0: Mm-hmm. And
3: so that was a very different thing for me. But I also, again, speaking to what New Orleans is to me, we are built to survive. I had been homeless prior. I had lived in a car. So the idea of the, of a struggle is something that I'm very familiar with. Uh, there, there was no mindset to not continue. There was no other fallback or uh, we don't have those things here in New Orleans. What you create for yourself is all you have. Um, My mom and dad were 50 years old and they lost everything in Katrina. Everything. Mm -hmm. They had no birth certificates down to the birth certificate. So to watch them figure out how to then survive again and, and take their children with them to figure it out I better figure it out too. If they can do it, if my peers can do it, if I've lost my family members along the way that did it in Katrina, all those people that have done it, uh, that's kind of how I took my career in the same kind of tenacity. It's like there is no fallback. I got to keep continuing because I have no other choice. And that became kind of like the ammunition I needed as an independent artist. Um, and you're right, the budgets left. The people left. There was all the people that was around during the studio, all the big names. <laughs> they were they were gone. Those guys, those guys were... It looked like a tumbleweed was going, you know, like the tumbleweed. (laughs) It was like all that left. And I had to get really familiar with the DIY scene. The good thing about that is though, that was my love of music as a young person. I grew up on alt rock, on, uh, you know, electronic dance. So like from Cage Choice to Biff Naked to Bjork to Portishead to to, uh, Soundgarden, I loved those kinds of models. Green Day was my first concert, so like, the idea of a cult following and building from the ground up was something that was fine for me because that's what I loved growing up. So I had to start from scratch, and that's what I did. The last eight years, i built it from the ground up. Bring the beat. she been into it like she gets in the heat. Sounds like a wave she rocked the heat. Seven girls do it better, you take the feet. Setting up a pony, you take a seat. Bust it for me. Bust it for me. Bust it for me.
1: You know, I I think your attitude is inspiring, uh, Dawn. There's very few musicians who would have had the limo and the catering and all of that, mm-hmm. and then it pulls away, and who wouldn't be standing there crying. Here's the thing that that um, uh, that I don't get because in in some interviews I've heard you say, you know, they would say to us, "Show more skin," you know, "You're too fat," you know, all of that. Now, now this is what doesn't compute because I know on TV you played the optimistic go-along, get-along, nobody was thrown. You you were not thrown, right? But I don't mm-hmm. know, I get this sense from your music that there were times where you had a string of curse words for those people who were going to tell you <laughs> how to dress.
3: Yeah, but... Um. also my father gave me ammunition to understand this business I still had a degree in marketing I still had came from so there was a it was a bigger game afoot right so like I also understood I had no like no nobody from New Orleans had ever been on television no girl especially you know we all we had was Little Wayne we had hip-hop right yeah. we didn't have a pop yeah. girl that was an example so I had I was on this television show where no you would never would have thought a girl from the night ward would be on a pop television show that was popular, and I'm gonna sit up and talk to Diddy. On top of that, being a black woman, where at that time you only the angry black, the Omarosa like at that time, when you think about what the black woman was, we didn't have. I was grateful to be there, and I was like, I have to play this so smart. So, yeah, those curse words were there, but it was bigger than just my personal ego. It was, I had New Orleans on my shoulders because no one had made it that far. The closest girl in pop. That was from our vicinity. Was Britney Spears, Kentwood, Louisiana. Yeah,
0: mm-hmm. yeah. Think man. about that. Yeah. And
3: that's a white yeah. girl, right? That's so like, that's a whole other world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a whole other world. So I couldn't fumble. So the, the 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 coming from nothing and then getting this massive opportunity and knowing that like, yo, you, this, I'd never been in front of cameras like that. There was, you know, with Puff giving you a shot, and then when we came back, we I lost everything. So when I came back to the show before we picked the band, I was homeless. So the curse words was like secondary to the reality that I had to pay. I had to give my parents a home. We were living on the floor and in a car. So like that attitude was secondary to the bigger scheme of things. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I
1: just meant in the the terms of telling you what to do. I mean, you have said loud and proud, I am the genre. Well, that's what that (laughs) came from.
3: That's what that came from, right? So 10 years of holding my tongue being stifled, 10 years of being told what to wear, how to wear my hair. Yeah. Like literally a man saying you have to wear this cause I have to wear this. And me being quiet for 10 years, As soon as I got free, I, I promised myself if I was gonna be building my own sets before the show, <laughs> sewing my own costumes, yeah. you know, producing these own records, then yeah, I am gonna be really cocky and loose mouth with what I'm gonna say because I deserve that. I paid 10 years of dues for it you bounce bounce, hit the rubble on the lemon, baby. Move your feet, move your feet, move your feet. My inner better your Took the I don't need a genre, I am the genre.
1: You know, we have interviewed Mac McCon and uh, and Laura Balance, uh, founders of of Merge, and obviously we've covered yeah. them for years. I love them
3: so much. Yeah. All right. yeah.
1: Tell me about the first time you sit with those two. Here's the Danity Kane girl who now has a solo album. I mean, you have a large solo catalog, but even that um I, I mean it is such an unexpected move for them and such an unexpected move for you and it 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 worked out so perfectly on Second Line. So I'm good. just wondering about the, what that first chat was like.
3: It was wild, right? Because I, I spoke to my manager, Dan, uh, at the time, because I hadn't had a manager either. I had horrible, horrible stories about <laughs> management. So I, like, serious. Like, one manager told me we wouldn't make it unless I dated him. Like, serious oh, levels of, uh, like, crazy. Ooh. Like, just crazy. So I stayed away for a while. And then I met Dan, and he was like, I think you should try Merge. And I, I did the research, because I had been looking into Loma Vista, Domino. I knew I needed to go out yeah. because I had get... I, I wasn't being received as a black woman in, the, in my own space. Mm. Culturally, black artists aren't represented in black labels. We aren't like the, our yeah. sound. Yeah. Like, for example, like electronic dance, heavy metal. There are not a lot of all black heavy metal labels, no. right? So you, no. we, we, have, we have we have to get creative, yeah. right? So I, was, I knew I had to go alt, but I, I, I hadn't figured it out yet. And I met with them. And at first I looked at the roster and I was like, man, I don't know if this is a smart play because there aren't a lot of people of color But their roster was so amazing, and it was so with everything that I loved, uh, from Destroyer to Arcade Fire to Caribou, who I love. I I love. I follow Caribou forever. Uh, And then we talked, and I just loved. I loved every. They they said, I see you. We love what you're doing. We don't want to change you. We understand your message because I told them that I wanted to to uplift black women in a space that we weren't seeing in, especially in electronic. And they said, okay, let's go. Where do we go from here? And the acceptance was so massive, guys. You have to understand, mm-hmm. i had been 10 years on a major label and I never had the acceptance or the belief yeah. in, in my art that I had with this crew. So color became secondary Not you know, them are not having a people of color that that was so of. I was like, OK, fine. That, that I can't like not see them because the acceptance of like them saying, no, we get you and we're behind you. And the mm. proof constantly that they have showed up for is I've never been treated like this as an artist. And I'm so grateful that we both took the risk because I think this 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 merge. for lack of a better you know you know for like being you know that's um, a good pun but but but, but, yeah this merger like was was beneficial for both of us in a way that I think will change the way like artists and labels understand artists like they won't just choose based off of what they conventionally think an artist should be I was definitely not on their roster but it was the best thing we could have ever done because now I sit in a space that I think they never thought they could have like pushed and they've done it beautifully like beautifully um and same here i never would have thought i would have lived on a label where destroyer lived yeah and do well and yet here i am well
1: i just always am tripping on the idea of Dawn richard compared to uh, uh, a neutral milk hotel yeah (laughs) you know but but really you know two visionary artists that wouldn't have fit anywhere else
3: Fit, I, I fit think there. Merge is a home for um, Merge. Will be revolutionary. They are going to be the the blueprint of how labels, especially indie labels, should start taking risk on. On just different types of artists that never would have, you know, you never would think that they would make sense together. I think this was much, such a beautiful marriage, and I don't ever want to leave now. Like they're stuck with me, <laughs> they're so stuck with me because I just yeah, think they yeah, understand. Yeah. They understand what I'm trying to do, and I think it's it's bigger than just what uh, what genre you're in. It's about the message. I think Merge cares about the message. They're making great artists, uh, and they're supporting great artists.
1: Coming up, we'll continue our conversation with Dawn Richard. We're going to talk about how she's grown into being such a talented producer and how she creates cinematic stories with her music. That's next on Sound Opinions. And we are back. This week, we are talking with artist Dawn Richard. Let's get back to our conversation.
2: You know, I think in a lot of ways, Don, you've been waging war for the last 10 years on the whole, n- multiple <laughs> stereotypes. You know, first of all, New Orleans music is this. We know what that, that's Ico Ico. know. That. that's Dr. Only John that. and, you know, this, this sound from the 60s. And you're a black artist doing different, kind of weird, different, you're, you're alternative R&B. And, you know, that's the genre you get put in if you're kind of a quirky, different sounding black woman in, in music. You know, coming from a background where Puff Daddy is like, talk about creating—you know—defining people. You're like, I'm not—I'm not defining anything here. I'm redefining it in my image. So yeah. that—that's a huge leap on multiple levels on your part, uh, and that Thank takes you. a lot of courage.
3: Yeah, I'm, but I think it's important, you know. I, but I've been, like you said, I think you nailed it, and you guys are seeing. I've been fighting my whole life. You are right. You know, long before. Uh, Music but just in general as a black woman constantly never really fitting in like I again I loved anime growing up. I loved rock music I'm never out from the south, but that's fine I could be from the lower night ward and Green Day be my first concert But that meant I was an outlier always so this wasn't something that just kind of came up I've always been familiar with kind of fighting to be who exactly who I, I saw myself to be and I think the biggest thing that I realized in my career was a lot of times uh, even with being with Puff I was being told what I needed to beat in order to be successful and I never ever saw myself as the thing that I kept being defined as uh, so it was important for me this time around to be unapologetically if I if I did get this shot because I knew it was a far a far cry because I knew the moment I did my solo music the way I wanted to do it I was already told if I went this route I would fail I asked Puff to sign me, I asked the major labels when, I, when Dirty Money was finished, I said, I'll stay with you if you support me with the sound. And they told me, if you make this music, we won't sign you.
0: Hmm. Wow. And so I
3: knew this was gonna be a risk. Uh, but I felt like if I failed, it should be on my terms. And what I, I chose then, and what I realized, I never knew my race would dictate my sign. <laughs> never thought that that would dictate what i would be until i was told i was in a predominantly white girl group writing the music and we were making hits the moment the white girls left and i was singing the same songs they weren't pop hits anymore that's a wild concept think about that like i was in a group where i was making the records and writing with them but the moment my face was on the same songs. They weren't considered as dope anymore. Mm. And then I got with my boss, who is the biggest person of all time and our album wasn't successful. And so he quit on it because he was he, he had a vision. We had all these amazing people and so So twice, my career was totally dismantled by without my power. Like, I, I just had to watch my career. So it was important for me that if I was gonna fight, it was on my terms. And that, you're right, as I got through my projects, I realized, damn, my race is really dictating how people see me. I feel the pressure, I feel the pressure. Especially with second line, I did realize when you look at electronic genre, a, a genre that came from Detroit. Yeah, house yeah, house right. music, Detroit, yeah. Chicago, yeah. New Jersey. Yeah. It was very black. House music, dance music was black. Ballroom culture. Black has now been infiltrated by if you look at any award show any nominations it's white DJs not even like it's some producers but mostly it's DJs with featured artists singing on it so an artist like me I've got to fight twice as hard because if I'm not a DJ And I'm not a producer that has features. If I'm just the actual artist producing the stuff as well as singing it and doing dancing, you know, dancing in the a count, I'm now not that.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, I made this point when we reviewed the record uh, a while back on the show that I think you are uh, one of the most revolutionary producers. It has nothing to do with I'm going to compare you to a black woman uh, since Missy Elliott right? Wow, so, so, oh my gosh. So, so talk to me about your approach as a producer. How do you run your studio? How do you work with your collaborators? You know, what, what's the Brian Eno stuff you're doing at the mixing <laughs> desk?
3: Yeah, so for me, uh, I've always loved sound design. That's mixing and sequencing has been the, the, the journey for me. And I, every time I collab, I never perform or work with the same producers twice, mm. ever. So each project has had a different... You know, like someone that nobody knows, I get it and I say, okay, we're going to build this from the ground up. And whether it's analog, omnisphere, whether we go with uh, Moog or we do it with uh, live sound, timpanis or whatever we have to do, it's built by myself with that other producer. I never work with more than three to four people Mm -hmm. because I think it's important that I have a sound first. Mm -hmm. No matter what the album is, you know it's my sound as soon as you hear it. Uh, with this project, I work with the incredible Ila Orbis, Black Kid. We did it in a motel, like in a dirty motel.
1: <laughs> you rented a motel?
3: Motel. You motel? No, he lived in the motel. He, he lived in the motel, wow. and, and I visited him, and I was like, oh, my. He made it so cozy and so fly, from the outside, it looked like you might, the Bates Hotel, like from outside, it looked like you might get stabbed. Um, it was so, it was really the coolest experience, and he's young guy, and, and, we, and he had never been pushed like this before, and it was important that I knew coming into it, sequencing was going to be imperative because we're going to be putting a lot of genres together. Mm-hmm. I wanted, I want, I've been listening to a lot of Larry Heard. Uh, I knew that I wanted to incorporate, I knew you know, House, so I had to li- listen to the the greats. Um, I listened to Daft Punk. I listened to Hans Zimmer as far as score, scoring the Blade Runner soundtrack. I knew that I wanted something that embodied uh, New Orleans but didn't sound like New Orleans yeah. because the story is New Orleans but this is the possibilities, this is the future. So it won't be anything you've heard before. So you can't you know, people were expecting brass bands. And I was like, no, I I actually defined it by listening to the BPMs of brass bands of second lines and applying the BPM and the cadence, but then making it sound completely different. So never taking it literally. Yeah, never.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And that's what we and I do that with every project is how do I create something that isn't hasn't been done before? take you know pay homage but figure out how to manipulate it so that it has its new a new journey to it and this album was so much fun to make because of that
1: well i i love it and uh but let me you know we're two uh, music critics dawn right so we always yeah. have something to grouse about let me ask you because i've never been able to i am always thrown by what for lack of a better term i'm going to call skits right I love your mm-hmm. mom, right? I would sit and listen to her talk for four hours, okay? Yeah. But the one thing about Second Line, I had to make my own playlist because, I, you know, I get tired of King Creole.
3: Have you ever been to a Second Line?
1: Oh, yes, indeed. I get tired of uh, selfish outro, right? Uh, parts of it, or, or voodoo, the outer mission, right? And I want the play... I, I don't want the ride to be derailed, right? So, <laughs> so I'm asking, as an artistic decision. When you decide to put in these interludes between songs, what is the thinking? How how would you defend that from me being an ignorant jerk?
3: Well, it's not an ignorant jerk. I think that's was part of the art, right? Some people mm. like it, some people don't. It's it's not just a sonic experience for me, it's visual. Mm. So I'm applying something beyond just your ears, right? Voodoo outro wasn't there for you sonically; it was there for you, me visually when I'm creating the eight count for live, uh, when I'm creating the music video for uh, that's about to come out for the Voodoo outro, right? Selfish is an introduction into the next album, so it's not there, right? It's not there for you now. You are thinking it's big. there for you always later, big. right? Okay, All always, right. right? So, so that, but that's that's okay that. Just like I have since the beginning of my career interludes has been the most fun thing to create. Mm. And if you check my trajectory, most of the time my interludes are better than half the songs I write. And people hate me for it because they're (laughs) like, why is this not a song? Um, And I love that because, again, I feel like it pushes when I used to read literature. One of my favorite things I love my grandmother, she had a PhD in library science. used to live in the library. I used to love when chapters when i would be reading a chat and one chapter would be like two pages and it'd be <laughs> yeah. one of the best chapters and i'd be like why did they do this <laughs> uh, and i always wanted to be like that as a writer so a lot of times they're they're eggs they're hidden eggs in a video game where mm-hmm. maybe one level is easier to do than all the other levels and they're put there as moments for for not everybody those are the connoisseurs who appreciate maybe They like that voodoo interlude because visually that's one of their favorite music videos or that's one of their favorite experiences So yeah, you're right. It's gonna be like that all the time So you don't mind you
1: don't mind if people make a playlist and and enter it But yet you're still old-fashioned in a way in that you were creating just like you know Yes, or Genesis did a movie in in, on an album, right?
3: You got it and that's my one of my favorite albums by the way um But but that's your that's the point How do I give you New Orleans in the future if I can't give you a visual to go with it? Because no one's ever seen New Orleans like that or even heard it. I've gotta give you longer experiences because they have not even really, some people are gonna be like, this don't sound like New Orleans. Right, because you've never seen Blade Runner in New Orleans. You've just never seen (laughs) that, right? So I'm trying to create a sci-fi experience in a place that you you're still dated to see it in the '70s and '60s, like you guys said. So sometimes I've got to elongate and shorten and maneuver it because I'm not just giving you something you put on your headphones. It's something that I've got to I got to take you to a world you've never been to.
2: Well, I and I, you know, Jim and I argued about this on the show because I loved hearing your mother's voice.
3: (laughs) I love her mother. You know what? I give mom. Hey, Mac McCorn. Give mom a solo album. No, mom. Mom could
2: mom mom contextualizes the songs for me.
3: Like, what does it mean oh, to love a Louisiana woman, a oh girl? Oh, God. You have to be willing to. Got to be ready. You, you, you got to be willing to take it like she give it to you. I mean, she's going to tell you what she feels. She's going to be honest with you. She's not going to back down. She will not back down. They'll tell you. they say, don't mess with a Louisiana girl.
2: What I loved about it was that I'm listening to an album. You're taking me on a journey and I, I, and it's meant like, listen to this sequentially, dude. You're not supposed to pick this apart. You're supposed to listen to the whole thing in one sitting. So I, I think, first of all, who's thinking like that anymore? You know, it's like it's yeah. it's sort of a lost concept. But I, I love the idea that we're thinking in terms of, yeah, people people will sit down for 35 or 40 minutes and listen to this thing beginning to end. I yeah. I trust my and audience. It's
3: tone, too. It's tone, too. I also wanted to play with, if you guys listen to both of us, similar tones. There's a lot of similarities in my mom, right? So there's this level of, it's even just the tonal conversation being between the two of us and kind of like that play too like they're damn near the same person you know like it's play it's a play happening that's you know like that's that's pushing you beyond just you know hearing my mom talk you know Mm -hmm. and then her and i have had a very turbulent relationship so the fact that we could even sit down and have that discussion was powerful in itself so there were a lot of underliers there that i didn't want to blatantly say that was more for ambiance uh, that's deeper for those who, ha- who appreciate the layers.
2: Wow, that's great. You know, and you mentioned something about the futurist aspect, you know, Afrofuturism. I figured that out, like that 2016 Redemption album, the, the, the album cover. I mean, that's Sun Ra, man. It's like, okay. Sun Ra. I get her. I understand what she's up to. So that is yeah. a big part of this, too, the sort of the idea that there's, and that's been a huge thread through black music history. For for, yeah. for decades, especially you know?
3: in New Orleans, especially in blues and cities like New Orleans, absolutely. And I'm so glad you caught the sun Um, And even the idea of taking the Mardi Gras Indian headdress and then making it metal.
1: Right, right, yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: Like right, um, and then on New Breed actually wearing a chief headdress, which is almost taboo because no woman should ever wear. You know, that's what they say, but just doing it while basking in the sun, like as if it's an everyday thing. Right. That in itself, right, is again, this constant ideas of what the future could be Mm -hmm. and playing it off of every cover. And then to design King Creole is a half Android, half human, as a black, you know, uh, animated character on a cover with the Mardi Gras Indian feather. On It's just, again, a play on the Afrofuturist story and how it's been a part of black culture for a very long time. And we've never really had the discussion uh, beyond our own little sub genre moments, but how it it, it, it hasn't taken its place in sci-fi the way I feel that it should. Right on a mainstream level.
1: That's because you got to go back to your first love and do the anime feature version of this album. (laughs)
3: exactly which is a whole other word I know I've seen you say in interviews
1: you you want to do your own
3: studio I do I do and I I, and it's and then working with again my being a creative director with Adult Swim that has been the fun part is finding all these incredible black animators and working with them and making this content uh that creates that so you can see more uh of our faces not just behind the scenes but on the actual camera because I would die if I could see a black version of Uh, you know a running man or blade runner or like you know like seriously or even just have more black faces within that space because it's you know like a black metropolis so good Uh, you know like just really push with the ideas of seeing black people in android form Mm -hmm. like ghost in ghost in the shell and really pushing for that that could be really fun Mm
2: -hmm. yeah, well, it's a fascinating, multifaceted uh, career you've built for yourself, Don, and, and uh, congratulations on the record. It has
1: been a joy talking to you, Don. Thank you
2: so I much. I
3: love you guys. <laughs> I appreciate you.
2: That wraps up our conversation with Don Richard, and as always, we want to hear from you. Who are some of your favorite genre-blending artists a la Don Richard? Leave a voice message with your opinions at our website, soundopinions.org. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we're going to dig deep for some buried treasures that are flying beneath the mainstream radar, and we're also interviewing another artist who sometimes flies beneath the mainstream radar but has made some really innovative
1: music over the last couple decades, Damon Locks. I'm glad Damon's finally getting some well-deserved attention, Greg. Starting today, listeners, you can participate in our Sound Opinions survey that is going to help us focus our resources and make the show more sustainable, help us learn more about how to serve you, our listeners. It'll be open until July 31. To take the survey, go to soundopinions.org. The link is on our homepage. For more Sound Opinions, listen to our podcast wherever you find such things. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this program belong solely to Sound Opinions and not necessarily to Columbia College Chicago or our sponsors. And speaking of sponsors, every week
2: our show reaches hundreds of thousands of curious listeners from around the globe via podcast and on 150 public radio stations nationwide. If you'd like to learn more on how your business or organization can also reach this engaged and educated audience. You can email sponsor at soundopinions.org. That's
1: sponsor at soundopinions.org. Thanks, as always, to our Patreon supporters. Sound Opinions is produced by Andrew Gill, Alex Claiborne, and our intern Sol Delgadillo, as well as our social media consultant, Katie Cot.